Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. Today, we're continuing with our informational questions with various guests with backgrounds in forensics and, and human remains detection. And today's guest is Paul Martin. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cameron. Glad to be here. So for so for our guests, our listeners, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of what you do and how you got into canine and, and what you do on kind of like the forensic aspect and human remains detection. Um, well, I am the owner of HRD Specialized Canine Training. It was founded in 2002 as a training organization uh, asking the question, really, what were the capabilities of our HRD dogs? And, um, but prior to that, I had gotten interested in canine search work in 96, 97, and got involved with it while going through paramedic school in 98. Um, and started off with volunteer team and doing live find crossing over into HRD. But in 2000, I moved and became affiliated with the sheriff's department and with that started focusing strictly on human remains detection from there um i I was really questioning in the early 2000s kind of the capabilities of the dogs and using the dogs as an archaeological survey tool to try to help prevent the unintentional disturbance of human remains on archaeological sites and construction sites. And a lot of that transferred, we found a lot of that would transfer over to some of the cold case 
work and the cold case questions. And so from there, uh, I did enter into law enforcement full time for a brief period of time, left law enforcement, uh, actually got tired of arresting kids. And uh, from there, worked in wilderness therapy with at-risk troubled teens. And kind of my main constant through all of this was my search work, uh, the work with the dogs, the, the, the teaching, the consulting on cases, and um, had the opportunity to go back to school and complete a degree in anthropology. Uh, completed my undergrad with a concentration in forensic anthropology and victim advocacy uh, as a minor, and then went on to grad school and did um, a master's at the University of Mississippi in anthropology. And currently, I have completed all of my coursework for a PhD in Earth sciences, specifically concentrated in archaeological um, geophysics. And my big thing is partnering uh, dogs with ground penetrating radar and not only using it for archaeological purposes to map historic cemeteries and get a better understanding of what those footprints are, but also using it as uh, a combined technology with um, cold cases to uh, try to help provide better answers of where human remains might be, uh, but also taking a look and trying to get a better understanding what might be under a concrete slab. Um, do we, we know that with the dogs, they don't necessarily always respond directly on top of a burial or a grave, um, due to hydrology. Um, and that's the, the water moving through an area. And with that, we can move odor from the remains and um, create concentrations outside of where the burial is. So combining all of it together, get a better understanding of, okay, we might need to dig over here or no, this isn't our area. We need to keep, keep searching. As far as working my own, my fifth dog is in the process of slowly moving into to retirement you know when you get a dog and, and you're able to work with them for so long it's sometimes hard making that transition over to the next dog and that's kind of where i'm at now um but with her i was able to um take this knowledge this um research and apply that to uh, some work I did in 2019 with History Flight, which is a nonprofit foundation focused on the 
search, recovery, and repatriation of missing American service members from foreign conflicts and specifically from World War II. So that's that's kind of where I am and, and a little bit of my background. And, okay. So you brought up something that I found really interesting, which is the combination of utilizing ground penetrating radar along with canines. Uh, talk a little bit more about that. Like, how do you pair these together? Um, it, it's similar in nature, you know, obviously within the special operations community and or law enforcement as well. We apply uh, various technologies in conjunction with a dog. So talk about this with G- GPR and dogs. Yeah, um, specifically with, with Graves, um, you know, a lot of times we can be given absolutely huge search areas uh, and asked to, to clear these areas or work these areas with the dogs. Um, and then it, once we've got an area narrowed down that's where we can then utilize ground penetrating radar to get another layer of data uh, on that specific site before we actually start that process of excavating or and really sometimes it's uh, even before we do the excavating it could be a question of clearing an area and it would take minimal amount of clearance for uh, to get a GPR unit in there. Whereas if we're trying to do an excavation, well, then we're not only taking, we're not just talking sometimes just shovels and screens and, and things like that, uh, but we're talking about sometimes bringing in earth moving equipment such as back end loaders, uh, backhoes, so forth. Um, but also um, when we start putting shovels in a gra- in the ground, our resource demand exponentially goes up. And with that, we're now looking at overtime and things like that because once we make that commitment to dig until we release that area uh just like with any other potential crime scene or crime scene if this is under the jurisdiction of the law enforcement agency they can't walk off and leave that they've got to keep somebody there around the clock to secure that. And if we're working under search warrants, we're we're sometimes working under um, time limits and things like that. And so this is where, by being able to partner this, these technologies together, we get a little bit more information, um, or actually it's a lot more information, and we can get it a lot quicker um, than saying, you know, four hours into excavating an area and still not know. Not know. Yeah. And, and for those who don't know what 
ground penetrating radar basically is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but basically gives you a visual um, information of below the surface. So if there's like pockets or anomalies that don't line up with the typical way that that ground should look through X amount of feet down, that gives you some information. So obviously if something's buried or disturbed, you're going to see some type of visual on the GPR reading on the laptop screen or whatever that might back up or confirm in the same general area where a dog might have given an indication. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. We're looking for any type of, of ground disturbance. Um, and, and the way this is done, uh, most have seen um, fish finders. Most have seen um, uh, at least TV shows that give you a little blurb of what um, aerial radar does and all we're doing is uh turning this on the side and using it to actually map the subsurface uh, of an area uh, so that um it's a non-invasive way uh it can take a little time to process but it's time that can be it can be processed uh, away from the site, so you don't have to necessarily secure the site because we haven't, we don't have an X marks the spot general area sometimes. Um, so it's a matter of really seeing what the monitor says while we're collecting the data, but really downloading it, processing it, and saying, okay, yes, we need to excavate here we should find uh something 18 inches down 24 inches down um we've got uh, a subsurface anomaly that is approximately 18 inches wide by five and a half feet long we can you know through the processing software we're able to actually be able to give some specifics of where that target truly needs to be whereas with our dogs sometimes here's our general area and and it's not a a fault of the dog it's just the the way odor presents to the dog and the dog's been able to give us the best they can under the environmental conditions that they've been asked to to search under. Sure. And you bring up a, another thing that I find interesting, and I know a lot of listeners will as well, but with your training background in education, um, describe a little bit about what terrain can do to odor. So like geographically and, and topographically, how things uh, like rises and falls in the land, like you said, how rain and and water goes to the surfaces, how that really can dramatically affect something that's buried and where it might come out as odor and then what odor might do when it hits that surface and you've got some of those conditions that are going on. Right. Well, so the easiest way to think about this is is think about things uh, being on a slope. And obviously with the slope, everything's going to drain downhill. Well, what becomes a much more complex problem 
is we've got we might have an area that appears to be flat well even with it being flat we've got an underground water movement that's occurring when we have um rain that uh and the water infiltrates the soil it can help push um odor compounds down um but it can also help draw push or pull odor compounds away from the remains themselves um and with that you might have a low-lying area where these compounds could pull or present to the dogs and especially with the these what we consider to be flat areas there is uh this hydrology and this movement of water uh, that is going to allow the water to find its lowest point so with that we could take odor or these compounds that are producing odor and pull that you know dozens of feet away if not further just based upon the topography i know there is a um a study that was done in california and it was in the mountains so they were able at least in this study being they were able to show that they had compounds coming from the remains hundreds of feet away but it was kind of a perfect condition because of the uh the slope and the terrain of the area and, and the washing of compounds over uh a period of years uh downslope and collecting in these little pockets and they worked the dog or dogs and they where they had responses from the dogs the soil analysis says you know there's these compounds that are, are present from the remains so they continued to work further up the valley further up and eventually they were able to recover the remains but this was something that presented itself over a period of several years prior to the remains actually being discovered um and, and that was one of those things where they didn't realize uh this individual had gotten up that high up we can also even with surface remains we could have uh material get washed out of the initial deposition site there's a um case out of idaho where the lady had been missing i think it was 15 years or so and um skeletal elements or a couple of pieces of the skeletal elements uh, had been found uh, much lower out in an area and uh, 
I had the opportunity to look at the remains and say, look at those elements and say, yes, that's, that's human. And, and they'd been sitting in the investigator's desk for several years. And they went out and they put uh, a dog on the case. And in doing so, the dog took them up into this rock formation. And sure enough, that's where her, her remains were found. And that was 30 or 40 feet away from where those individual elements have been found. Okay. Wow. Yeah, because I've seen things where entomologists will show how the various bugs can literally move uh, body or body parts, feet or more, away from the originating source. And obviously, when you add time and everything else, along with you know the other animals in the area, but the this the movement of the subject. And the material can be quite extensive, depending on, of course, the time, uh, how long it's been, uh, the person's been missing for. So not, there's, a, there's a ton of factors that come into play when working a dog, depending on the case and the time and things like that we're talking about, which kind of brings me to this question. You know, how important is record keeping? And uh, with some of those points that you bring up about the conditions, the environmental conditions, what types of things uh, should be documented, not only for training, but of course, obviously, when you do use a dog on a actual uh, search for an investigative purpose? Uh, I think we don't, in general, and this is for all disciplines, I don't think we keep enough information in our training records things that uh, i believe that we need in our training records and need in our search reports uh definitely are items such as time of day time of year but what's the temperature what is the barometric pressure what is the humidity all of these things ha have a, an impact on the odor availability to the dog. And, and the, again, this is across all disciplines. It's not just for the HRD dogs. But one of the things that I think we, we've got to do is not only how long did it take us to work this problem, how long had we allowed this problem truly set up and air out, so to speak, mm -hmm. prior to ever putting a dog on the ground, right? Yeah. No, it's it, – it, and you're right. I see a lot of uh, lack of documentation across the board, um, but specifically when it comes to conditions – to me, it would be obviously highly important to be documenting those points that you brought up, the wind, time, temperature, time of year. Um, you know, if you are high speed in the sense that you can, you know, have the device that tells you the barometric pressure, the humidity, things like that, because this will give you insight as to your dog's performance levels 
during those type of conditions as well as what the substance is doing under those conditions uh, versus just throwing your dog out there and, and labeling, we found something, we didn't find something, and so on and so forth. So for sure, and as we already know, legally, the training records are the benchmark. It's what they look to to validate a dog's performance and or reliability. So if your training records are uh, fairly bland in the sense that you don't really document much um, or the, or you're not documenting enough, if you don't write it, it didn't happen kind of thing. And if you don't track these things, you don't know the dog's condition or the dog's abilities or limitations. So right. that to me is fairly important, correct? Oh, it, it, it's so important. You know, one of the things that also thinking about, so we're, we've been talking about burials. So we need to also track the type of soil that that burial was created in. Uh, not only the quantity or the amount of source that we're placing down, but how are we placing it down? How deep um, are we putting it into any other type of container? And so we, we need all uh, of those aspects uh, to be recorded as well. I think one of the, the biggest things that routinely keeps popping up is a the question of these trained final responses by cadaver dogs, but they've been able to find no residual evidence or trace evidence is the proper terminology. They're, they've been able to find no trace evidence to conclusively say that remains had been there. Oh, but we know handlers all day long will come up with reasons why the dog indicated. They'll hypothesize like crazy, won't we? <laughs> right. We, we will. Yeah. Uh, but also at the, the same point in time, I think part of the reason why this might be being questioned is we've got nothing in our records showing that the dogs could do that. Yeah, there's no support. There's no supporting evidence from our side as as handlers and trainers showing that the dog can or has done this before. Therefore, it's possible. Exactly. Um, so uh, the the biggest thing is being able to to document what it is we are doing in our training because, like you said, if it didn't get it get written down, it didn't happen. 20-something years ago and learning to, to be an EMT and paramedic, and one of the first things that we were taught in writing our reports, if it didn't get written down, it didn't happen. Um, and it's not something we can go back and add two years later or five years later whenever that, uh, that event comes back up in court. Or, or comes back up for us as handlers as an event in a real-world application versus just a, a training sequence. Yeah, and 
on that kind of same topic, and you've been a part of various legal cases, what are things that the legal system looks at and or challenges to handlers that work at HRD, uh, dog? Number one thing is the certification and the completeness of the training records. Gone are the days of being able to show, yes, I worked 15 minutes a day for five days a week on XYZ source. Gone are, are those days. And we've got to have the the facts in there to to support that our dogs can do this job. But also having the the dogs go through a robust certification process that includes a double blind where you actually have the opportunity to show that the dog is successful and we have tried to remove as many of the biasing influences that that could interfere with what the dog and handler do as a team. I think that's one of the the growing things. I would say in watching some of the testimony and reading some of the testimony, we've got to get our handlers more educated or better educated in what it is they're actually doing what it is they're working with, getting handlers to understand the the difference between trace and residual, Um, getting the handlers to understand, well, what does does the complete odor profile look like? And that's the freshest of fresh to the oldest, driest of old that we can get access to from the smallest of quantities all the way up to a full body. Um, And and that shouldn't just be a full body in a fresh state or a um, active decomposition, but that should be a full body that has been allowed to sit there and completely decompose. Um, So it is skeletonized. And you are getting that host of compounds being presented to the dog because of the nature of the legal community. We are seeing more and more cases where the HRD work is being called into question. In the past, it's been more or less stipulated by the defense. Okay, that's fine. You know, we, we accept to... dogs being a great tool and they don't challenge too much. Right. Uh, but we do have some defense experts out there that are challenging mm-hmm. and are challenging what it is handlers are actively doing with their dogs in their training and in their documentation. Yeah, because it's easy to start if obviously back to that first point we were talking about a little while ago, if you aren't documenting things or your documentation is very vague, then you open the door for that doubt to be put in there 
that you do or you don't do something, or can that dog really do what you say it did? Yeah, we we we'll accept in this case this occurred, but is it you know whether other circumstances there that you know created bias or the dog indicated because of this condition that condition they had nothing to do with odor, but had to do more with information away from what the target actually was, i.e. handler conditions, so forth like that. Other important part is you're bringing up is that diversity of odor. So with record keeping, um, we, like you said, you have to be documenting and exposing the dog to the myriad of different types of uh, training odor material that they are required to, to locate and detect. So whether it be, um, I'll just use the cadaver aspect of this, uh, flesh, uh, bone, teeth, fluid, um, so forth, and then all those other various conditions that if you're able to document, such as time, how long it's been out there, weather conditions you know, that it was exposed to, um, the various amounts, the thing I know which is very hard for most HRD handlers to go through or get their hands on to train with is full body. So there's that whole difference there. But the documentation of all of these things is highly important um, because what happens is, and this is across all the spectrums when it comes to detection, is we end up using the same odor source materials that we have access to readily available. So my training kit gets used quite a bit for my dogs, et cetera, um, versus getting out there um, uh, through various resources, getting the dogs uh, on as much different uh, odor samples as possible that are related to the target material that you're trained to detect uh, versus the constant you know, kit that you have or your neighboring agency has and so forth. You have to, have to, have to get that diversity out there and then document that because who knows on what case you may go to that you're now, uh, the dog's expected or uh, utilized to find something that maybe it hasn't been exposed to. So even though um, it's a bone or bones, but... This, these conditions that it's in has that has a dog or the team been exposed to this and has it been documented in such a way that uh, matches or can be close to uh, under examination and say yes this is a, is a possible uh, result canines talking sense webinars you have heard from many of our guests well now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the ford canine website all webinars can be purchased for 25 dollars each or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. 
Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. As we've documented these things, uh, demonstrating a level of reliability, um, what would you add to that? I mean, we talked about soil. Is there anything else you would add to how we document or diversity of, uh, in this case, HRD odor? Yeah. um, We need to make sure that the dogs are being exposed to a wide variety of not only skin and muscle tissue, but also uh, internal organs, uh, fat, things of of that nature. Um, And I know um, we've got to do a better job of exposing the dogs to bone. A lot of times it's it's gotten a lot easier for handlers to get access to draw bone through uh, different companies and so forth. But it's getting them the access to that green bone or wet bone um, and getting them the access for bone that is in that transitional state from that green or wet stage all the way through to the draw. Um, a variety of fluids, not only the, the leachate that is produced by all of this tissue being decomposing, but also um, blood in a variety of states Due to the fact that um, not all of my my cases have been um, strictly go find the body or go find this, you know, one of the cases was we need to find the knife, you know, and and searching for that knife, it's not going to have necessarily chunks of tissue on it it's not going to have leachate on it because this just occurred the only thing it's going to have on it is blood and therefore we need to make sure that we're we're training on that one of the things that i've run across a lot of times with handlers is that yes we want our dogs to pinpoint we want them to be as accurate as possible uh in their training But when it comes to a case, we want them to be accurate, 
but it's not that handler's job to point out that the reason why my dog alerted is that tooth right there, or the reason why my dog alerted is that drop of blood. No, once that dog has that trained final response, it is then up to the investigator and the crime scene personnel to be able to come in and throw every resource they have to say, okay, this is why that dog responded there. So part of it is uh, an education component for the handlers, but part of it, we need to be better educating our investigators, our crime scene personnel, as well as the attorneys um, that are ultimately responsible for taking this to court. Uh, I had the opportunity uh, to consult on a case several years ago and they're like, well, what really is holding our case together is the canine work. And when you looked at the canine work, you saw what they're trying to do is show that one dog backed up another dog. That would be fine if they were worked under different conditions by different handlers. But this was the same dog worked one right after the or two dogs worked by the same handler one right after the other and it's like no you cannot present this in front of a judge it's not going to be accepted and then if you lose that component of the case what else are you going to lose with it um and thankfully it made the attorney in the case, the prosecutor in the case, go back to the drawing board, get with her investigators, and they were able to go out and find the information they truly needed. And, you know, the the suspect in the case, yes, it was a state that they could have gone for a capital uh, punishment, but she was able to secure a plea bargain bargain of life in prison without the possibility of parole and as far as i'm concerned that's a win that that means that guy is never going to be on the streets ever again and two you know even though it wasn't the best work by the canine it at least helped protect the overall integrity of what we are trying to do mm-hmm. with the dogs. Yeah. Now on that same topic of odor, what would be important proofing and distracting odors for canine teams to train on? And of course have that documented. I would have, um, so obviously food items, chicken, turkey, um, beef, pig, all of those type things, Mm -hmm. things that, um, but also, um, I want to make sure that the dog is proofed off of any type uh, of natural, um, non-human animal that might be operating in the area, be it a possum, a squirrel, um, 
deer. Mm-hmm. Um, any um, any other decomposing type of animal, correct? Any other type of decomposing type animal. Mm-hmm. Anything that uh, is producing a strong, pungent odor. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's written up as, like, catfish bait. Sure. And, and things like that. But Rotting cheese or rotting meat of some sort. Right. Yeah. Um, but one of the things um, I, I would say... Horse hooves. I don't know if you've ever trimmed um, a horse's hooves, but it absolutely reeks, stinks. Those clippings do. Mm-hmm. And it's going to produce an odor that's going to be a novel odor sure. to the dog. And when the dog encounters it, it's going to have a change of behavior. Well, the handler needs to understand that not all changes <laughs> in behavior are indicative yeah. of the target odor. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Um, so that, that's why we've got to do this proofing. The other thing would be scat yep. from these, from the various um, animals that partake as part of the scavenger guild. In, in your area and when I, I say scavenger guild that's any animal that is going to feed off of other dead material remains. yeah yeah and um so with that um in the pacific northwest well we've got to go ahead and make sure that we have grizzly or brown bear as yeah. well as black bear yep. um whereas you know in oklahoma well you better go ahead and make sure you got the mountain lion in there mm-hmm. not so much the the black bear and, and some of that stuff but go to your your local state biologist and say okay who operates in what part of the state mm-hmm. that I, I work in so that I can get access to some of this stuff so I can proof off of it? Oh, absolutely. You need to have as an extensive proofing kit as you do an odor kit. And I think that is something that kind of gets overlooked at times. Oh, very much so. I uh, have to have an extensive proofing kit. And, you know, the thing is, We've got to have as much care in handling that proofing kit as we do our normal sources. And and so that we can minimize. um, And if we're we're doing it properly, we won't have cross-contamination. But also, by setting things up in similar fashions, things like that, it helps. It will help proof the dog against some of these common odors such as the nitrile or latex gloves as the the glass jars or the uh suet cages and things like that and with that it allows the dog to see or smell some of these other odors but also 
when you put it back to just that human target being the the main difference, I think that helps the dog understand that all of that other garbage is exactly that. It's garbage. And it's truly the human that we're after, not the PVC, not the glass, not not all these non not all these associating but non-target materials for sure. Right. The um and I've got to uh through friends of mine see how Europe has, you know, really taking uh crime scene preservation extremely seriously uh when it comes to the use of dogs, far more than we do. And there are without a doubt lessons I am seeing that we should start applying before too long where like attorneys over there had already uh, done things to challenge cases with uh, various forensic type dogs. But for example, um, the crime scene preservation or integrity of the crime scene, um, things that I've seen the Europeans do continuously and rigorously is the canine teams are in a Kyvex suit. They minimize their contamination into the scene. Many times they, the handler does not even have to go into the scene because the dog can work from them at a distance and do so effectively and efficiently. In addition to that, prior to even the search, uh, this actually came from a legal challenge that they had over there, was um, that they didn't clean their dogs in a sense. They didn't wash a dog's face or feet or things like that before they had entered crime scenes. Well, of course, now they do. Uh, because all it took was one case where they challenged that material could have possibly be brought in because of the dog's exposure to uh, an area or training or areas around where the dog had walked around, the dog brought it in just through that. You know, as as potentially ridiculous as it may sound, it was probable. And, and from that point on, they now basically in a form, decontaminate the dog before they start their search. That way they have minimized the dog's uh, potential of uh, contamination to the crime scene. So what's your feelings on that for us here in the States and what things are important for handlers when working a potential crime scene to follow crime scene integrity and and, uh, preservation? I think that there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from what our um, cohorts in Europe are doing in regards to the the crime scene preservation and just the way the crime scenes are processed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I know in in Europe that uh, some of their processing units are so specialized yeah. in that this unit, all they do is this type case mm-hmm. or all they do is this one component yep. for this type of case. Um, as far as um, the, the use of Tyvek suits, I think that's great with um building searches, vehicle searches, uh, searches that are going to be uh, focused in a tight area. Yep. 
um, like a burn, a like a potential burn scene or a, uh, like you said, at a, right. at a house where like you said, it's fairly focused as we think something is buried over here. So kind of thing. Right. Um, it gets a little bit, um, much when you start looking at, well, we need to search acres and acres. And yeah, acres I totally agree time. with that. That, that becomes, like you said, that falls more in line with that typical, uh, search and rescue recovery type, uh, mission versus a crime scene, uh, specific. And, and you brought up a really unique point, which is, uh, I'm curious to see your opinion on. So just like you said, the European mentality for much of this is the canine team, specifically dog is very, very specifically trained for a task where we have a mentality over here, and it's not just in uh, HRD or search and rescue in any type of way, but also in law enforcement as well with various types of things. We like to be jack-of-all-trades kind of concept. Let's train this dog on this, 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 and this. And I really have concerns in various aspects of that because there's very good precedent. There's very good information for all of us that to show that the more specifically trained a canine team is, the more efficient they are and the more proficient they are at that skill versus asking them to do this and this or this, this and this. And because it muddies the waters, not only for the dog, but the handler, the handlers have a hard time reading and understanding the difference between certain types of uh, indications or like you said, changes in behavior earlier, just because a dog has a change in behavior, doesn't mean it's automatically target material or target odor. So when you, you have a dog trained in three or four different variations of, of some type of odor work, it convolutes or dilutes what we really need the information to be where, like I said, the European mentality is, not only is a dog, let's say, used in a human forensic capacity, they take it and go, this dog only does blood. This dog only does semen. This dog does uh, odor within this time frame, that kind of thing. And I think there's very, very valuable um, lessons, again, that we talk about that we should start paying attention to before some type of litigation makes us go that way. I, I think that's a, a, an excellent point. And I know over the last 20 years, we have started seeing less of that cross-trained, you know, my dog can go find a live person, go find a dead person, go find the evidence, and run a trail or a track. Uh, and and we're still fighting that to, to a certain extent in, in some areas of the country. Uh, but I think it's a very good point to say, okay, maybe what we need is a dog that does just blood. We've seen the success that has come with that in Europe. Um I know the the bureau uh, ran a dog that that did just blood. I also uh, know that 
we've got dogs that really excel at this draw bone, these older burials, and so forth. But due to the certification requirements that are, are presently presented, uh, we've got certification requirements that say our dogs should be generalist. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, I was talking to, uh, actually, this has been a series of discussions over the last couple of months. Um, now, the, this dog, you might have a dog that excels at finding that single drop of blood or finding that single tooth or, you know, really can vacuum that one acre of property and say, okay, I'm ready to do some more. Um, but due to some of the uh, constraints that are put on them, those are the dogs that often get pushed to the side because they're not the dogs that will go out and say, okay, let me go search the back 40. I'll be back. Um, and and I, I think there is a place for those dogs. I, I think we need to expand uh, some of our, our testing criteria to say, no, if you want to focus or specialize in just um, older bone or dry bone, we can do that. You want to specialize just in blood? We can do that. So I, I think we, I think that's a conversation uh, we, as an industry as a whole, need to be looking at. You know, and, and it's not just um, within this discipline; it's within. Other ones, all as well. this yeah, one. yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I definitely agree. I see, like, this is like I said, we can since we're on this topic of HRD, we can take human remains and then have subcategory classifications or certifications for teams. So, like you said, you know, uh, you have human remains detection as your top category. Within that, there's blood certification. So those dogs that just do that. And then there's, like you said, dry bone certification, dogs that would be used more extensively in archaeological uh, type uh, work. And then you have within that, I would even say the ones that are spe uh, specific to uh, working crime scene versus recovery in, in large wilderness setting kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that way it gives those that need that resource information of, okay, oh, this team can do that for sure versus that generalist, oh, my dog's HRD. Okay, so does that mean you can do archaeological and crime scene or archaeological and blood only? And, that, and of course, these handlers or the organizations themselves don't ever want to say no. So like, oh, yeah, of course. And then, then we go down wormholes because of that and then uh, face or taint uh, potential cases that have legal ramifications to them. So that way we have to, uh, we have to be aware of that. And like you said, I think we need to be proactive and like you said, have this conversation so that way we are better prepared, uh, 
versus being reactive because of uh, a lawsuit or a legal case that was lost and the system says now we only accept dogs that have done X, Y, or Z. And not only within that, the handler education within those components is critical. You know, how a handler works uh, a crime scene versus an archaeological dig site is is I I know for sure is different, but you're the you're more of an expert than me. How that that's without a doubt to me critical. You know, if, if they they pay attention, if they are working the archaeological crime scene or archaeological site and working and following um, the the entire archaeological method that's going to transfer very easily over to a crime a scene. Crime okay. Thing. Okay. Yeah. Cause there is a, a significant level of preservation. I see what you're saying. Uh, in, in both cases, in both uh, genres there, if you want to call it that, uh, both have to have, um, I would say probably fairly strict uh, uh, ways of doing it to preserve or protect what we're looking for. And it's all about precision. Yeah. And, and that's one of the, in the anthropological world, one of the big discussions that is being had uh, and has been discussed for the last almost decade is where does the role of forensic art, forensic anthropology or forensic archaeology fit? And those disciplines or that discipline is totally beginning to come into its own. Um, it, it's it's no longer just a subfield of a subfield within the realm of anthropology. Um, and we do look um, at the the. Pr- the archaeological precision and, and the control to establish context um, from the way we excavate human remains in an archaeological setting to the way we should be going about detecting and then excavating and recovering remains in a crime scene setting. Um, Unfortunately, I know um, time equals money when it comes to crime scenes and processing. Sometimes uh, taking that archaeological approach, it's going to be a little bit slower, but you're going to control for so much more, Um, whereas... Some of the things that I have seen being taught in short courses for recovery of human human remains, it's very much, oh, let's dig down to the remains, and now let's dig those out, and, and we're good to go. Whereas with that controlled archaeological approach, things that are being documented are the tool marks, are the it's going to be taken apart in a layer-by-layer approach, whereas if we take that same approach to working our dogs in an area, 
it's not just oh willy-nilly throw the dog out there and see what happens it should be that same controlled okay let's really take this apart and that's where i think some of these dogs that might get overlooked now to be a generalist dog would really excel in saying okay you want every square inch of this check i'm going to check every square inch of it it, it is a discussion that we have to have uh, and, and right now i think we're we're still in the process uh, of getting teams and, and handlers to understand it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all, that there are some discrepancies in the certifications that are available, that not all HRD dogs or cadaver dogs or whatever title you want to stick onto them are not always certified uh, to the same exact standard. Um, and, and that's one of the things that I know NIST and the OSAC committee are trying to address is so that right now, if you call for a dog in California, you get the same quality of dog in Alabama. And there, there is a lot of discrepancy out there um, between, oh, this is a cadaver dog in Wisconsin versus this is a cadaver dog in Maine. Yeah, and so uh, I know the industry is discussing how to make these things a little bit more consistent, but I think we could also uh, say, well, let's go ahead and subdivide it a little bit more. And therefore, we can truly get that consistency because we as handlers have our own biases. We all have our own preferences. Um, I'll admit, I will readily admit it because of my research, my work, I swing heavily towards the older um, dry remains, buried remains. Um, yes, my dogs get the exposure to the, the fresher stuff, but it, it's not near what the, the old dry stuff. And yeah. that's just because of, of the nature of the work I do. Yeah. So on that, I'll ask the, the last question I got for you is what would, what would you say is the biggest difference for a handler slash canine team, uh, doing archeological versus the typical human remains detection? Like what's the thing that they would be like, Holy cow, this is way different. This is, I'm, I'm, this is a challenge or this is very different to me. I think I think it's the the level of precision. Also, um, one of the things that I, I need handlers that are, are thinking about this um, 
like in Florida, you're not just writing a report that's going back to a to an investigator. You're writing a report that is going back to a state agency and will dictate what potentially happens with that property. Um, so it's it's the precision. Um, and I, I would really push for um, our handlers, instead of being generalist, to become specialists, to learn as much as they possibly can and, and understand that the, the one-size-fits-all approach that we typically try to apply doesn't work for that archaeological uh, field, and it doesn't um, necessarily work for our cold cases. Um, we can't search for the burial that's been out there for a decade, the same way that we're searching for a body that's been dumped a month ago. Well, I have taken, I know you're a busy, busy guy, so I have taken enough of your time, and I'm very grateful for you uh, spending the time on here with me and the listeners uh, describing you know, a, a very unique uh, uh, understanding of human remains detection and then detection standards in, in general as well. Um, so I know you go around and you do some teaching. So how do people find you or follow you and they, and what do you have coming up, uh, in the next few months? Easiest way to, to find me is, um, HRD specialist canine.com. That's our, our website. Uh, we're also available on, um, uh, Facebook. We do a, uh, monthly trainers form where we'll have a, a guest instructor speak uh, that handlers can can check into. Uh, that's usually the last uh, Sunday or the last uh, Thursday of the month, depending on whichever one falls closest to the 30th. And then um, I do monthly webinars of a variety of different topics. And then um, from there, um, next class, that in-person class I have coming up is actually going to be out in Idaho at the end of September. And it is geared towards the cold case archeological type work, uh, surface skeletal remains that have been aged uh, and so forth. Um, and then in October, November, uh, we'll have uh, a couple more classes here in the Memphis area. I know one of those will be uh, a water human remains detection class. And then we just got to see where COVID allows us to go and takes us in, in the, the coming months uh, because a lot of the classes, unfortunately, we have had to shelve um, due to concerns uh, of COVID. 
but most of the classes we try to keep um, to about six, no more than 10 people. Uh, so we get a lot of hands-on individual rep uh, time with every handler present. And um, one of the things I would say is come prepared with a notebook and pen and pencil, uh, pen or pencil, because we're going to take copious amounts of notes because it's not just about wagging the dog's wagging tail. Um, it, it's truly being intentionally intentional. Yep. And that's our focus. That's perfect. Yeah. Cause we, we have to, uh, get a lot better about that industry wide, like you said earlier. So, and I'll put uh, your website in the show notes to so those of the listeners that are uh, hearing this. Uh, if you just scroll down on the app or whatever you're watching or, or listening to it on, you can scroll down and you will find the website for Paul on there. Paul, again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here. I'm greatly appreciative, and uh, I hope in the future, too, um, I'll probably try to get you on to do a webinar on the Canines Talking Sense webinar series, too, so that way people can also uh, see some of your stuff that way. Very good. Look forward to it. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, In the meantime, stay safe. keep training you too and again everybody thank you for listening to this episode of canines talking sense where it's okay to be nosy 